Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on naturally fueled flames. Now, in the last episode, Rob, you, you opened with a question that we never fully got to the to the bottom of. The question was, what is the oldest continuously burning fire on Earth? And uh, Or you may have phrased it a little bit differently. That was one question. I guess another one would be, like, what's the longest a single fire with a, with a single common origin has ever burned? Right, yeah. But essentially getting down to the, the same question, yeah. Yeah, I guess the last one is really unknowable. The first, the first, what is the oldest continuous fire still burning today, is, uh, I don't know, maybe still difficult to know, but easier than the other one. Right. Uh, so I, I don't know if this question can be answered definitively, but we did at least establish that all of the oldest eternal flames maintained by humans at various temples and memorials and so forth around the world are minuscule in longevity compared to some sites of naturally fueled burning, places where some chunk of the earth itself is continuously on fire or smoldering at the place where it meets oxygen. And one example we looked at in the last episode is a very strange and beautiful place in the Northwest Territories of Canada called the Smoking Hills, where eroding coastal hills and cliffsides 
burn by themselves as a result of an exothermic chemical reaction that happens when pyrite-rich mudstones exposed to the air. So erosion happens, part of the cliff comes away, and some of this mudstone that has you know, a fine-grained pyrite in it oxidizes, it heats up, and then uh, some combustible elements that are within the mudstone sort of smolder or catch fire, and that just creates a self-sustaining, self-igniting uh, burn that can go on for a long, long time. All evidence points to the conclusion that the smoking hills have been burning for hundreds or even thousands of years. So there might be a question about whether you'd want to call this technically an example of fire or not. I mean, it, it is smoldering rather than you're not usually seeing like big sort of uh, dancing flames coming off of it, but it's smoking and burning for hundreds or thousands of years. It certainly is a very long burn, but is it the longest? Well, I think the answer is probably not. Again, this this question is hard to, to answer conclusively, but one site I have seen proposed as the holder of the title of the longest burning fire on Earth is a place in Australia known as the Burning Mountain. Ooh. The Burning Mountain is technically known as Mount Wingen, spelled uh, like Wingen, like W-I-N-G-E-N, but it's Wingen, which is a name allegedly derived from a word used by the native Wanarua people meaning fire. The Burning Mountain is located in the upper Hunter Valley of New South Wales, what's today about 300 kilometers north of Sydney. And the earliest written records of the mountain trace back to stories published in the Sydney newspapers in 1828, though the site had been used and known by the Wanarua going back much longer. To get a feel for the extent of this site, I was looking around for photos and videos, and I found a really cool video somebody uploaded to YouTube of aerial drone footage, so you can look that up if you want. But if you are peering down at the the mountain from the air, what you will see is a, a sort of smooth crest of a mountain peak, where a section that looks to me to be about, uh, I'm, I'm not so good at uh estimating area by, by sight, but it looks like maybe half the size of a soccer field, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been scorched clean. So all of the ground around it, this is not a bare rock mountaintop. This is a, a fully forested uh, and, and grass covered mountain. So all of the ground around this burned area is populated with, with trees and grasses, but within the burned zone, there is only bare earth, soil, and gravel, either bleached white like ash or burned red like brick. And near the edges of the burn field, there are these pale skeletons of dead trees, some laying flat. I guess they, maybe those are the older ones that have fallen down and some still standing. The ones that are still upright seem to be the ones that are a little bit farther away from the center of the burned region. And all around the area, even in sections that are now covered in grass and vegetation, presumably covered in it once again, uh, there are noticeable cracks and fissures in the earth like you might see opening up during an earthquake scene in a disaster movie. Yeah, I would say this, this footage is definitely worth seeking out uh, because when you hear Burning Mountain, and even with that description, you still might be imagining some sort of uh, Mordor-esque, uh, very you know, volcanic vision of what we're talking about here. And and the reality is in many ways more subtle than that extreme vision, but but also... In inherently, uh, you know, weird when compared to most other uh, environments you're going to encounter. Yeah, totally. And I, I think there are indications there may have been times, even in fairly recent history, where it 
it looked scarier than it does now, though it, mm. it certainly does look very strange. One of the earliest written accounts that's been widely cited and republished was an investigation and field report called Burning Mountain of Australia by the Reverend Charles Wilton, uh, published in 1829. I dug up this article, and I wanted to read and mention a few sections from it because it was interesting. Wilton begins by acknowledging that he's wading into a kind of ongoing controversy and would have to contradict previous reports, uh, including the earlier reports that Mount Wingen was a volcano with a crater or caldera. Uh, now, Wilton's investigation revealed that the mountain was probably not a volcano and certainly did not have a mouth or crater, and he writes as follows. That portion of the mountain, Wingen, where the fire is now burning and which is a compact sandstone rock, comprehends parts of two declivities of one and the same mountain. The progress of the fire has of late been down the northern and highest elevation, and it is now ascending with great fury the opposite and southern eminence. From the situation of the fire having been in a hollow between two ridges of the same mountain, Mr. Mackey, uh, referring to somebody who gave an earlier report, was probably induced to give to the clefts in the mountain the appellation of a crater. The fact is, the rock, as the subterraneous fire increases, is rent into several concave chasms of various widths. I particularly examined the widest of these. The rock, a solid mass of sandstone, was torn asunder about two feet in width, leaving its upper and southerly side exposed to view, the part so torn asunder having slipped, as it were, down and sunk into a hollow, thus forming the convex surface of the heated rock. I looked down this chasm to the depth of about fifteen feet. The sides of the rock were of a white heat, like that of a lime kiln, while sulfurous and steamy vapors arose from a depth below, like blasts from the forge of Vulcan himself. I stood on that portion of the rock which had been cleft from the part above, and on hurling stones down into the chasm, the noise they made in their fall seemed to die away in a vast abyss beneath my feet. Oh, wow. So I love the part where he starts chucking rocks into the, the chasms <laughs> in the earth. So, okay, he has established, uh, this is probably not a volcano. There, there is no crater, no caldera. Instead, there is a burned area on the surface of the mountain producing sulfurous fumes. And then there are these cracks or chasms in the earth, and the fire seems to be burning down in the deep of these cracks. Now, in comparing it to the Forge of Vulcan, though, uh, this comes back to something we touched on in the last episode, that when people encounter these, they have no choice, but to, uh, in many cases, to, but to compare them to human fire technology on one level or another. Yeah, especially industry, right? Like both of the, uh, the earliest written accounts of the, the Smoking Hills in the Northwest Territories compared them, to, uh, compared them to human industry, one to a chemical factory, the other to a brick manufacturing uh, location. And that uh, many of the oral traditions of the Inuvialuit people said that these were the fires coming off of the hills were the cooking fires or smoke from the the fires of the little people or the invisible people who lived inside the mountains there mm -hmm. after they'd been uh, driven away from human companionship. So coming back to Reverend Wilton's account, he, he goes on to write that there are a bunch of these chasms. They're of varying width and they're constantly belching out smoke and sulfurous vapor. 
And the chasms are also, quote, beautified with efflorescent crystal of sulfur, varying in color from the deepest red orange occasioned by a ferruginous mixture, I think that means containing iron or iron oxide, to the palest straw color where alum predominated. And he said he could not spend much time near these clefts because the ground was too hot to stand on and the vapors were not, quote, most grateful to the lungs. (laughs) (laughs) Very polite. Yeah. Uh, And he he makes a bunch more uh, descriptive observations. He says that he did not observe any lava or trachyte there, and these would be rocks that would be be signs of volcanic activity. So he, he seems to be... Uh, accumulating evidence against the interpretation of this mountain as any kind of volcano. He also says that he didn't see any coal at the burning mountain, though he notes that he found coal in many places nearby. So this air, this region of the country seems to be coal rich, uh, which is important. We'll come back to it. And as one weird aside, he's like, Oh, by the way, uh, right on the other side of the Burning Mountain, there's a spring that's great to drink from. Nice, cool water, <laughs> especially after you've been breathing smoke from the fumes, from the chasms. You go and get yourself some of the water from the spring. It, it will quench thee. <laughs> uh, folks, it is not a good idea to drink untested or untreated spring water. It can, uh, it can have stuff in it that's not good for you. <laughs> Though, I honestly, I don't know if that's more or less likely if you're getting your uh, spring water from a, from a mountain that's on fire. Yeah, because I can imagine the the water potentially tasting strongly of sulfur or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe it's just a, a wonderful spring that was quite refreshing. Now, as a general comment on his observations, Wilton writes, quote, I have compared the phenomenon presented by this mountain with written descriptions of volcanic action and subterraneous fire in other portions of the globe, but can discover no exact similarity between them. The burning mountain of Australia may, I think, be pronounced as unique. One other example of nature's sports, of her total disregard in this country of those laws which the philosophers of the old world have since assigned her. <laughs> I don't know about that, uh, Wilton. This is certainly not a unique phenomenon. We can come back to that in a minute. But but he is correct. You know, it depends on what he's looking to, I guess, in in history books and other accounts, because uh, there can be, you know, obviously, you know, big differences between uh, what one could roughly classify as uh, as fire erupting from the ground or burning earth in one part of the world and um, and something uh, that fits the same description elsewhere in the world. And we'll we'll get to some examples of that in a bit. Right. Uh, So in the years since, study on the Burning Mountain has continued, and it is clear that it is, in fact, a coal seam fire. So you can imagine there are masses uh, of coal inside the mountain, sometimes, you know, ribbons of coal running through the rocks. And at some point in history, that coal must have been exposed to the air to some extent and set on fire, and it has been slowly burning or smoldering ever since. Now, how was it first ignited? Ultimately, we have no way of knowing that. But hypotheses include lightning strikes. That would make sense. So lightning strikes exposed coal seam. That that sets it ablaze, and it just continues throughout the years after that. Uh, it could have been a natural brush fire. Uh, brush fire gets close and, and does the same thing. There are some theories that it could be a kind of spontaneous, uh, spontaneous ignition of exposed coal, because when coal is exposed to air and gets really hot, maybe baking under the sun, it can start burning on its own. 
uh, or there could be some kind of chemical reaction, maybe involving uh, you know uh, sulfur like we uh, like we observed in the Smoking Hills, the the oxidation that kicks off that burning process in Canada. And then, of course, obviously, there's there's the other possibility, which I think Smoky Bear would definitely point out to us that uh, there's always the chance that that human beings have a hand in in setting such uh, things ablaze. Possible, yes, either by accident or uh, intentionally. Yeah, and so one of the articles I was reading mentioned the possibility because I think there are some early reports that make it that make the Burning Mountain sound more hellish and and uh, stupendous than it is even today. I mean, today you don't see flames anywhere; you just see and smell the smoke, and you see the scorched earth on the on the surface, and then these chasms leading down below. So something's happening deep down in there. Fires in the deep, but you're not seeing tongues of flame erupt from the earth. I think some early reports did say that that they observed like lights and and stuff like that, which may have led to the the initial reports that this was some kind of volcano, if they were seeing actual like glowing flames or, or something like that coming out of the mountain, which could have been caused by if there was a section of the coal seam that was just closer to the surface, right? It's closer mm-hmm. to the surface. So more oxygen's getting to it. It's getting really hot. It's producing these flames and they're within, you know, a distance from the surface that can be seen with the naked eye. Yeah, because we are dealing with a situation where uh, you know geologic processes are, are need to be considered, and and also we're in a situation where fuel is being consumed, and so uh, a certain amount of change is going to take place there. Like even in uh, the, the Wilton quote that you you read here, like he talks about the great fury uh, that is observable here, and perhaps this is just you know his his description being you know colorful and and enthusiastic, but uh, you know th- that doesn't necessarily match up with, say, you know, these modern drone uh, uh, images and the modern drone footage that we were talking about earlier. Right. So the surface appearance of a coal seam fire like this could could vary a lot over the ages as it continues to burn. I think one one of the biggest variables just being like, how close is the coal to the surface? Mm-hmm. Now, coming back to the question of how long the fire has been burning and how we could estimate this as the the oldest continuous fire on Earth, it appears to be uh, burning underground at a depth of roughly 30 meters below the surface. So while it has an enormous quantity of fuel that it can access in the coal seam that feeds it, it's actually burning incredibly slowly and – I'm pretty sure that the main reason for this is that it's so deep that it has very little access to oxygen. So for a mundane analogy, if you ever have experience working a grill, think about getting a fire going, uh, and maybe you want this fire in the grill to burn low and slow uh, instead of hot and fast, what would you do there? Well, you manipulate the vents, right? You squeeze them down to only the barest crack of an opening so that the fire has very little access to oxygen. You can't close the vents completely, of course, because then the fire will just go out. There's no oxygen. But if you keep just a little trickle of oxygen going in, the fire will burn slowly at a lower temperature and last for a longer time without extinguishing its fuel source. So uh, it, I think that's probably what's going on in this case as well. There's you know a bunch of coal down there, but it's burning through the coal very slowly. It's smoldering over the years because it's deep and the oxygen, not a whole lot of oxygen gets to it at once. So scientists have actually been able to estimate the, the average rate at which the fire spreads within the Burning Mountain. And a, 
a common uh, estimate I've seen is that it appears to be going roughly one meter per year. And because we can track the historical movement of the burned area through geological markers, we can actually estimate the age of the fire, as the authors mention in a uh, in a paper called uh, Thermal Infrared Imagery of the Burning Mountain Coal Fire, published in Remote Sensing Equipment by C.D. Elliott and Adrian W. Fleming in 1974. And so the authors of this paper write, quote, Baked sediments and slag produced by the Burning Mountain Coal Fire have been traced over a distance of six kilometers to the northeast of the present chimney. The Burning Mountain Coal Fire itself is of considerable antiquity. If it's assumed that the fire is burnt continuously and migrated steadily south at the present mean rate of movement, and again, this is estimated to be roughly one meter per year, it would have taken approximately 6,000 years to cover the distance indicated at the surface by its effects, though they acknowledge the fire may in fact have been burning for a much longer period. Uh, but it's kind of nice. That, that's some nice even math to round it out, right? So yeah. if it's gone about six kilometers and it's going about one meter per year, it, it seems to have been traveling for at least around 6,000 years. And I don't know how credible these next claims are because I don't know the methodology behind them, but I, I've at least seen it stated in some other articles that the fire could be much older, maybe more than 100,000 years old, but I don't know why anybody would say that. So as far as I can tell, even if only the low-end estimate of 6,000 years is true, that would make the Burning Mountain the longest burning fire on planet Earth. Yeah, I mean, that that dwarfs anything we've discussed thus far uh, or will discuss uh, after this. I was reading about the site on the uh, the National Parks Australia page, and they actually summarized a, a Wanarua story about the origins of the mountain, which was that there was a, a woman who was waiting for her husband to return from battle, and she was sitting upon the mountain, and her husband did not return. So I guess he, he was killed in battle. And when, when he didn't come back... She was so distraught that she cried out to the sky god, Biami, to to kill her, and uh, the god did not kill her. Instead, he turned her into stone, and so the tears she wept became fire and set the mountain itself on fire. Oh, wow. Now, um, this, is a, this is a site that, that, uh, that, that people can go and see. Uh, uh, you can be looking it up on the website here. Uh, but you can go to Burning Mountain Nature Reserve, and there's a, a what a one to two hour hike you can take, and you can go to this observation platform that's also visible in the drone footage that we were looking at. So uh, I know we have a number of uh, listeners out there in Australia. So if anyone uh, out there has has been to this site and has some firsthand uh, experience they would like to share, uh, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, totally. If you've been there, write in. Let us know what it's like. Yeah, the website also points out, please note, remember to take your binoculars if you want to birdwatch. Because serious birdwatchers are like, burning mountain. No, no, no. I'm interested <laughs> <of> those birds. <laughs> Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. 
Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Okay, but so th- this is one type of naturally fueled fire, right? This is a coal seam fire. And there are other fires like it, though uh, none that we know of that are as old as this one. Some of the other major ones actually have clear human origins, like there are some famous ones in uh, in the, the the coal mining regions of the United States, like the, the famous Centralia fire in Pennsylvania. There are also, I know, uh, a lot of coal seam fires throughout China, 
where places that have where coal has been mined have accidentally been set alight. How long has the Springfield Tire uh, fire supposed to have been going on on The Simpsons? We wouldn't have our tire fire. (laughs) Um, hmm, I don't know. How long is how many years has The Simpsons been on? Oh, wow. 74 years years at this point. (laughs) Now, coal seam fires have all kinds of interesting characteristics. And also they can be incredibly troublesome because, of course, they're just sitting there belching smoke into the atmosphere without even being of use. I mean, it's not even like a coal power plant that is belching the, you know, all this carbon into the atmosphere and polluting the air, but at least you're getting power out of it. This is just doing that and nothing's coming from it. It's just burning. And it's in many cases hard or even impossible to put these out. I know there have been various schemes involving dumping like liquid nitrogen and stuff in, mm-hmm. and, and some of these have just proven pretty much impossible for people to extinguish. Yeah, though it is interesting how it is kind of the naturally occurring equivalent of um, of human coal industry, you know, yeah. like because it, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's coal, it's burning, it's just not doing anything for humans. Uh, uh, so coal, of course, is uh, is a fossil fuel formed from uh, ancient organic matter converted through heat and pressure. And like we've been saying, coal seams are just blanket-like coal deposits in the rock. And when exposed in an outcrop or even in an underground environment, these seams can and will burn. Yeah, if oxygen can get to the coal, that's that's dangerous. Right. But of course, this is not the only natural fossil fuel that can be set alight and lead to a sort of persistent ongoing fire that, that stretches beyond human control. That's right. One of the big ones here is, um, is, is, a, is, is a natural gas-fueled fire. And this is exactly what it sounds like. Natural gas is, of course, also a fossil fuel formed underground due to high temperatures and high compression of ancient organic matter into flammable thermogenic methane as opposed to biogenic methane, which is produced by organisms. Deposits of natural gas occur in smaller amounts at, at, at uh, shallower depths, near oil deposits, and in deeper deposits of mostly just natural gas. There, there are several different classifications that we can work with here, uh, and I'm not going to go into detail on, on these, but there's conventional gas, there's biogas, deep natural gas, shale, tight gas, coal bed methane, submarine methane, hydrate gas, and geopressurized zone gas. Mm. Um, so the, the basics, though, are that if conditions are right, natural gas forms within the Earth over geologic time, and if conditions are also right, that gas can leak to the surface uh, without human industry playing a hand in any of it. And if that, that natural leakage of gas should encounter a spark, a flame, well, uh, then uh, you have yourself a, a potentially a jet of fire uh, emerging from the Earth. Right. The Earth itself can sort of have a pilot light going. It's just there is a continuous release of natural gas, which is flammable. And if the flame gets going, the heat is there. The fuel is continuously supplied as it leaks out of the ground. And the oxygen is there in the atmosphere because it's meeting the surface. So you can just have a flame that comes out of the ground and just burns and burns and burns and burns as long as the uh, as long as the gas is continually escaping. Yeah, and uh, and very very shortly here we'll have a, a I think a great example of this. Uh, but another uh, uh, possibility worth men- mentioning here is that of peat fires. So peat is found in shallow wetlands such as swamps and bogs. Large deposits of plant matter have decomposed under uh, anaerobic conditions. Peat has a number of different uses for uh, in, in human technology, including gardening, filtration, chemical absorption techniques, but it's high in carbon. So if it dries out enough, it can catch fire. 
And I've read stories about the, these uh, peat fires that get out of hand can also be incredibly difficult to deal with. But it, it is interesting because you don't necessarily think of something in the bog uh, being flammable like this. You don't? I don't know why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do think of things like swamp gas and, uh, and you know, we've talked in the past. Will of the Wisp. The, Will of the Wisp, yeah. But you can also imagine yourself in this environment being like, it is so damp here. It, it, is, it is so wet. How could anything possibly burn on its own without humans playing a direct hand in it, right? All right, so coming back to natural gas-powered, uh, naturally-fueled flames, uh, I want to come to some, some what I thought were just fascinating examples that uh, I, I don't think I was really familiar with any of these because they, they concern uh, what is now Azerbaijan, on the um, Ab- the Absaron Peninsula, uh, this was a, a region that was under the domain of Shirvan in ancient times, but came under the domain of Imperial Russia, the Ottoman Empire, Iran, and Soviet Russia during the 20th century. Um, and uh, this is an area where there is a lot of um, a lot of petroleum and also various examples of, of natural gas emerging from the ground that uh, uh, that I thought we might discuss here. Okay. All right. So it takes us to the, what is now the capital city of Azerbaijan, Baku. Uh, it's a host to numerous sites of interest, including the Maiden Tower, a 12th century construction with a very intriguing design. Uh, its origins are often explained in a tale concerning fire. Um, in, in particular, there are a few different uh, Zoroastrian legends about this uh, structure. And I included a picture here for you, Joe, and uh, I encourage listeners to look up images of this, uh, this, this structure because it's, it's, it's quite picturesque. I don't think I've seen anything quite like it. It's, it's rather different from, uh, from, from other 12th century constructions and you know, certainly from other uh, archaeological con- um, traditions in other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is also interesting because, of course, fire has very important religious significance within Zoroastrianism. I, I've sometimes heard Zoroastrianism, I think, incorrectly described as a fire-worshipping religion. And I don't think that's quite right because fire is not like a god or the god of Zoroastrianism. Like the, the god of Zoroastrianism is the is Ahura Mazda, you know, the, the god of, mm-hmm. of good and, and light. Um, but but fire is a, an important religious symbol within their right. worship. You, you do see these ancient accounts by foreigners generally who come into this region and they're like, oh yeah, they worship fire here. But yeah, I think you could very easily compare that to accounts of, say, Europeans going into many other parts of the world and saying, hey, they worship demons here. They worship devils. They're not Christian at all. So, uh, uh, you know, I, it's, it's ultimately, I think, more complicated than, than that. But there is this element of fire that does pra- uh, pop up in some of the uh, religious traditions in this area. I, I think maybe this might be a very rough analogy, but it would be kind of like mistakenly saying that Christians worship a cross made of wood. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that 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 gets at it. Yeah. Oh, but but I so I want to know this legend you mentioned a Zoroastrian legend concerning the uh, the Maiden Tower, this intriguing and and uh, beautiful old building uh, and its origins concerning fire. Yes, and I was I was reading uh, was essentially a, a post that was put together by Professor uh, Mahir Khalifa Zadeh and uh, Leila Khalifa Zadeh. And uh, they point out that there there are several different legends tie, that concern fire and concern this this tower, the Maiden Tower. Um, but uh, the the basic story that that really captivated my attention was this idea that okay, you have this very brutal siege that's taking place at the city of Baku, uh, 
and the the people there they pray uh, before the holy fires of the fire temple to uh, Ahura Mazda to save them. Uh, again, this is the creator deity of Zoroastrianism, and I'm going to quote this uh, this bit, uh, uh, just a, a bit from the uh, the paper here or the post by uh, uh, Khalifa Zadeh here. Quote, finally, he heard their prayers. On the next day, the people saw that a large piece of the holy fire was fell down to the earth from the top of the fire temple tower. A beautiful girl came up from the fire. She had long and fire-colored hairs. The crowd went down on their knees and started to pray to her. And so from here, basically what happens, the fire maiden says, hey, I am sent here to protect you, but I'm going to need a sword and I'm going to need a helmet to hide my long, beautiful hair from the enemy. The enemy cannot see my hair. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they outfit her uh, with these items. She orders the gates thrown open, and then a great battle ensues. And she engages, she winds up engaging in single combat with the enemy commander, who just assumes she's just another one of the, the, the male soldiers of the city, you know, dressed in, uh, in the helmet, wielding a sword. Uh, so she ends up knocking the commander down, and then she pulls a knife and holds it to his throat, and he asks to see the face of the warrior who has bested him. So she shows him, she takes the helm off, and he's shocked to see the face of a girl and the long, beautiful, flame-colored hair of a girl. And first, he realizes, okay, first of all, if this is what the girls of Baku are capable of, are, you know, if they're this tough, then we don't have a chance against the, the rest of the, the army. But then he also falls in love with her instantly, and then she <laughs> falls in love with him, and then peace is declared. Oh, didn't see that coming. Yeah, yeah, it kind of has a, a, goes in a direction I didn't, I didn't expect there. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, who knows? You, with stories like this, you can have multiple stories, I guess, kind of merging together and it twisting over time. And mm-hmm. you know, at some point, someone decides, what if it had a, what if it had a romantic ending? Um, yeah. and, and ultimately, um, uh, Khalifa Zadeh shares a few other versions where, you know, various other things occur and also mentions that the tower might just be called the Maiden Tower because it was never conquered by the enemy. It's the idea. It's like this, this tower is it's, it's a virgin tower. The enemy has never defiled it. I see. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. 
because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so you, you have this history in Baku, uh, you know, concerning fire and, uh, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's a, the, the character of the city seems very much associated with it. And you see that even in the city's modern uh, wonders. There's a, there are, there's a trio of skyscrapers there known as the Flame Towers. And they're, they're, they're very beautiful in the pictures I, I looked at. They have this kind of curling flame shape to them. And so, you know, during the day, they're, you know, reflective glass and steel, uh, very much like, uh, like any other modern skyscrapers. But I've also seen images where they light it, light, the, light these towers up at night with, uh, you know, swirling uh, orange and yellow and red and, uh, and also some blue uh, thrown in there as well that really make them look like, uh, like strong depictions of flames curling up from the earth. Hmm. And this comes back to the, the idea that this is a region rich in petroleum and natural gas. And you have various sites of interest here uh, that are associated with that, including uh, Yanar Dag, also known as the Burning Mountain. Uh, and this is where natural gas constantly seeps up through the ground and has been aflame since at least the 1950s when um, it may have been ignited by shepherds. So this is an example where... Uh, you know, ultimately, who knows, but at least one of the, the stories out there is that, okay, there's gas leaking up and then some shepherds set it on fire in the 50s. Um, and by some accounts, it has been burning ever since. Flames uh, reportedly jet about uh, three meters or 9.8 feet into the air uh, from 
uh, from this site. And I looked up images of this site, and this is another one where if you're going into this expecting something out of Mordor, you're probably going to be disappointed. It's basically this this hillside, and there's a there's an area where there's not any vegetation, and there's an area that's really dark, and then here are the fires uh, springing out of the earth. Now, this area is also known for its mud volcanoes, which are not true volcanoes as they don't produce lava. Instead, uh, uh, and, and I have to throw in this wonderful description that I found for mud volcanoes in general from Brewster et al. in a 2015 article in Geo Echo uh, Marina, uh, they say that these are uh, geo-exuded slurries, inclu- uh, usually including water and gases. So they look like a like a, a bit like um, like bubbling mud, like gas rising up through the mud, uh, you know, forming these big bu- bubbles. It has kind of a bog of eternal stench kind of a look to it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, some of these also it looks very much like an alien world. Like you have this this kind of barren landscape, and here is like the bubbling pool of mud. Years ago, I think I flagged mud volcanoes as a as a potential episode topic for us. Oh, yeah. We could easily come back to it. But yeah, weird sort of gray clay puke coming up from these these cracked blisters in the earth. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, this, this region of, uh, of, of, of Suraxani uh, has long been associated, again, uh, often with fire worship or religious practices that concern fire. And their accounts going back apparently to the 10th century at least. But uh, as luck would have it, uh, we also have accounts of this region from German traveler uh, Engelbert Kampfer, who visited here in 1683 and, dis- and, and, uh, and has some wonderful descriptions of what he saw. Engelbert Kampfer, of course, popped up in our vegetable lamb episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. As one of the early voices of, of skepticism about this story, saying that, uh, I don't know, I traveled all over and, and people don't really seem to know what, what these stories are talking about. I, I do not think there is, a, uh, there is a plant that makes lambs. Yes. So the, the book in question is Exotic Attractions in Persia. 1684 through 1688. And uh, I was looking at a translation of this by uh, Willem Flor, uh, uh, which you can find on uh, uh, ebook or physical book out there. So I'm just going to read uh, j- just a, a brief bit from it here where he's talking about these fires. From there, we continued our march. And after midday, we came to the burning field, covered with white sand and sprinkled with ashy dust. From numerous fissures, sulfurous spouts burst from the soil, a varied and pleasant spectacle. Some fissures made a lot of noise, and with their fires and their violence aroused a holy fear among some rare spectators. Others again emitted less strong flames, allowing everybody to come quite close. Others exhaled fumes, or rather hardly visible vapors, but which reeked strongly of the spirit of naphtha. These phenomena appeared in the area of 88 paces in length, 26 wide. The fissures were amazingly narrow, not wider than one foot or one palm, some shorter and drawn into a semicircle, and others crooked with a long and sinuous bend, which I have shown accurately and conform to reality in the appended illustration to complete this description. The edges of these cracks and the soil itself, when you remove the dust, showed a pox-marked light stone, almost like pumice stone. The matter seemed to be a conglomerate of seashells and minuscule snail shells. 
We came upon about a dozen people who stayed there, who, around a fire, were engaged in all kinds of activities. In fact, some having placed copper or earthenware pots on a not-too-blazing crack prepared the meals for the inhabitants of the neighboring village of Sorgani uh, at Swaga, thus named because of the fire. Others, having brought stones from all around and having heaped them together, were burning lime, uh, and once, when ready, they made a pile to transport it in small vessels. Two foreigners, Indian fire worshippers descended from the ancient Persians, were quietly seated around an enclosure they had constructed. They watched and venerated the spouting flame, offering prayers to the eternal God. One of the lime burners had approached us proposing to show us something particularly extraordinary if for this surface we offered him some money. When we had counted it, he placed small cotton balls that he tore from his dress on a fire shovel and set fire to them. Then he very quickly took the flame obtained in that fashion above a fissure at some distance, which had neither fire nor flame. Its vapor was everywhere invisible until it produced a very high flame. This was a beautiful and unexpected moment, but the flame disappeared again after a while. Such is the first appearance of the wonders of nature, well known in this part of the peninsula, but not in the same place, and eternally remain in people's memory. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I love everything about that account. That's Oh, yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. Though, I, I have to notice, Camphor uh, mentions cotton. <laughs> Thinking back to the vegetable lamb thing. So, he knew about he knew about cotton, at least. I'm assuming this translation is accurate, and that yeah, is what yeah. he meant, instead of... Uh, using the word for wool or something. That's a good point. That's a good point. So again, that is from um, uh, Exotic Attractions in Persia by, uh, by uh, Engelbert Kampfer. Uh, tr- uh, and uh, you can pick up a, a copy of that that comes out from, uh, that's out from Mage Publishers. Uh, and there is a Kindle edition. Uh, but there's another site of interest related to all of this. And that is the um, uh, Atashka Fire Temple or the Fire Temple of Baku. This is a square building with um, pentagonal walls and a domed roof constructed atop a natural gas leak that provides fuel for a large flame in the center of the temple, as well as for four smaller flames on each of the buildings uh, uh, on the roof. Basically, they're four small, uh, almost like little towers, one at each corner of the, of the roof, and those uh, are flaming as well. Oh, wow. So this is a, a temple, a, a religious building built around a, a natural gas leak. Yeah. So I love this because in that comfort account, we had an example of people cooking over uh, one of these naturally occurring uh, spouts of gas and you know, spouts of flame. Uh, and, uh, and now we have an actual structure that is not, not only like built around this, but, but seems to be manipulating the flow of gas so that you can have um, additional fires, control fires uh, burning at the top of the temple. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, there's some old uh, uh, woodcuts of this, and uh, and and also you know you can find modern photos of it as well. Um, it's been a place for Hindu, Sikh, and Zoroastrian worship, um, and uh, it seems to be some debate on who originally worshipped here. And part of this may be due to what uh, Mary Boyce described in a ninth, in 1975's On the Zoroastrian Temple Cult of Fire, published in the Journal of the American Oriental Society, uh, as, quote, the dearth of records of Zoroastrianism at any period before the 17th century CE. 
But Boyce points out a few different ideas about the history of these fire temples. Again, in the in the uh, particular, uh, mainly in the, we we're talking about the, the in the Baku region. Uh, first oh, of all, oh, I see. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I was like, surely we we know it's older than that. Okay, I see. In yeah. this region, yeah. Uh, so, first of all, the history is complex due to the existence of both Zoroastrian image cults and fire cults. And, uh, and there seemed to be an offer, a, a lot of overlap between the two. So, she says that the image cults seems, seem to have lasted from the 4th century BCE until they were suppressed by an iconoclastic movement under the Sasanians or the Neo-Persian Empire. And so in this, we're getting back into this idea that we explored in a previous episode about the role of images in worship. Mm, yeah. So basically, uh, and so the, the cult of the fire temples may have been instituted in opposition to, quote, this alien form of worship. And so I believe what she's saying here is that um, uh, as the use of images were suppressed in their worship, uh, they turned to the flame itself as a focal point of worship. And we, can, we, we see that reflected in that story we, we were discussing earlier, praying to uh, Ahura Mazda, uh, but using the flame as like the, the focal point of the worship. Right. And Boyce also points out that this would, you could also link this to older traditions of the veneration of uh, hearth fires. And, uh, you know, it goes without saying, I guess, as well, that this is a region with natural gas, uh, easily linked to natural flames, et cetera. So there's a, there's a, there's a local uh, aspect of this going on. But then in, in general, we also have these traditions of keeping the fire and, uh, and to a certain extent venerating that fire and protecting it and looking after it. Uh, she also points out that, quote, no actual ruins of a fire temple have been con- convincingly identified from before the Parthian period. That's from 247 BCE to 224 CE. Now, this is another uh, bit that I found quite interesting. Um, so th- this is a still, I believe, a candidate to become a UNESCO World Heritage Site, uh, the, the temple, uh, the flame temple here. Uh, but the temple flame uh, reportedly, according to UNESCO, went out in 1883 due to petroleum activity in the region. So now it's lit uh, via an artificial gas line mm. uh, instead of natural gas emerging from the earth. So it's interesting to think of this this site and this date in 1883 is kind of a key boundary point between the oil age, the age of fossil fuel, and the, the period preceding it, a time during which the divine fire is extinguished and then is replaced by technological mastery over fossil fuels and fire. Oh, yeah, interesting. So I found all this just just richly um, uh, interesting. I I have I have to admit I had not read much about Azerbaijan. I've never been to Azerbaijan, uh, but uh, it, this this is this is all wonderful. I absolutely love it. And I would love to hear from anyone out there listening to the show who is in Azerbaijan or is of uh, uh, of uh, Azerbaijani heritage that uh, or has just traveled there and seen these sites. Uh, write in, let us know. I'd love to to have some you know s- some more insight on all of this. All right, we're going to go ahead and close it out here, but we're going to be back and and hey, we might keep talking on this this topic. The the train is in motion, and there's there's certainly more we could discuss here. Yeah, the, the burning continues. Uh, the the fuel has not been extinguished yet, so 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 this may go on next week. All right. In the in the meantime, again, we'd love to hear from everyone out there who has additional insight, 
uh, firsthand or otherwise on the topics we've discussed here. Um, you know, and uh, and also anything about the the previous episode or other other episodes that have come before. Potential episodes we could record in the future. Um, as a reminder, core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind air on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. You can get that wherever you get your podcast these days. On Mondays we do uh, listener mail. On Wednesdays we do a short form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to say hello or uh, to suggest a topic for the future you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Network.